Hi, my name's uh, John Pope, and I have been here before uh, with you guys back in January. So um, when I got the text from uh, Anthony about coming back up, I was just really excited um, because I enjoyed my time here last time with you guys, and I uh, enjoy your pastor. I think he's a good guy, and uh, you know we've developed uh, somewhat of a friendship over the past few months, and so... Um, and so, yeah, I was just really honored and humbled uh, to come back, you know, because obviously I was here last time, and hopefully it wasn't so bad, you know, that you guys at least were like, yeah, it's okay to bring that guy back, <laughs> you know, so, uh, so really, just once again, thanks for having me back, and uh, it's great to see some of your faces again, and I look forward to connecting with some of you, even maybe some new people even afterwards, okay? Um, and so... Uh, you know, I had such a good time last time that I brought my whole crew this time. So the whole Pope Pack uh, family is down here in front. My wife is with me and my four kids. So uh, they're down front here. So you're more than welcome to meet them afterwards too. Okay. So, yeah. <laughs> so, all right. Uh, so let's, let's kind of get into it a little bit here. You guys have started this series uh, with uh, We Want a King, which is going to be in First and Second Samuel and part of uh, First and Second Kings, uh, just kind of tracing the early kings of Israel. And as I was thinking about this series, and particularly chapters 9 and 10 this week, um, I ran across a temptation in my mind that I think we're all tempted with, uh, which is... I tend to, as an American Westerner, kind of think that my problems are new and the challenges our country and our government and our people are facing are new. And I was really challenged by this text to say, no, they are not new. There's problems that have existed since the ancient times that we're still dealing with today. And one of the things that we're going to see that the challenge that they're facing in 1 Samuel 9 and 10 today is that there is this old debate that has gone on throughout like human history for a long time of big government versus little government, okay? Uh, Republican versus Democrat, <laughs> like, right? Like this has been, we think that this is a new problem, you know, like, oh, it's the Republicans that want the small government and the, you know, Democrats want the big government. Uh, but this is really the same debate that's going on in the context of 1 Samuel as well. So it's not actually a new debate. It's an old debate, right? Uh, that they're facing the same problem. Do we want a smaller government or do we want a bigger government that has more power and control and, and these kinds of things, okay? And so I think as we're facing that challenge, as the people in First and Second Samuel are facing that challenge, particularly here in chapters 9 and 10, I think this is the big idea that God wants us to get today, okay? That if God is the God who hears our cries for mercy then he will subtly and subversively address our government authorities, okay? All right, so if God is a God who hears our cries for mercy, then he will subtly and subversively address our governing authorities. He's working in the midst of them. He's working through it. He doesn't just throw it out. And say, oh, big government bad, small government bad. No, God in his sovereign mercy works subtly and subversively through those governing authorities. That's the big idea today. I think that's what 1 Samuel uh, is trying to get for us today. All right. So uh, let's do a little bit of background. Pastor Anthony talked about this last week that if we're going to understand 
First and Second Samuel, like if we're going to get down in the weeds in it, we have to understand some of the canonical or the biblical background, the story, because this is a narrative, right? So it has a background, it has a context to it, a literary context, and so we want to make sure that we're kind of up to date on the literary context, what's happened in the narrative thus far, not just in First Samuel, but in previous books of the Bible, because it helps us understand what's going on now. There will be key words and phrases that the author assumes you understand uh, and so I want to catch us up to date. Like I have to go, and when I'm studying the text during out the week, I have to do that. I have to kind of go back and be like, okay, what's kind of happened and led up to this point, all right? So in the Hebrew Bible, 1 Samuel actually comes right after the book of Judges. Ruth is not in between it in the Hebrew Bible, okay? The Hebrew Bible, they put Ruth after uh, Proverbs, right? Uh, and you have at the end of Proverbs, the Proverbs 31 woman, then here comes Ruth, boom, like she's an embodiment of Proverbs 31 woman, right? And so in the, in the uh, Hebrew Bible, it goes Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, 1 Samuel, right? And there's this phrase that Pastor Anthony talked about last week at the end of the book of Judges that says everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes because there was no king. And so the narrative of 1 Samuel picks up right where that left off, right? So it's like, hey, now we're kind of searching for a king, okay? So let's kind of go back and let's look at what's happening with the book of Judges, right? Judges is the people are now in the land. Joshua's died off. Like he had a couple of battles that he won and he's kind of helping to get them settled in the land. And so Judges is like the people, they're now in these kind of tribal clans, right? Everybody's got their allotment of land, but there's still battle. There's still people in the land that they need to conquer to take over the land, right? And so that's kind of the book of Judges, right? They're in the land. They've got this great, they kind of start here with this great opportunity. God's taken them out of slavery, brought them into the land. They've won a few battles. They've gotten settled. But there's still nations around them that are warring with them. And so Israel starts kind of off up here in the book of Judges. But slowly, as you watch the trajectory of the book of Judges, Israel starts to go into this spiritual and moral decline, right? Uh, and so, you know, I, I, I can't stand it when my, like, my, Friend, my, my, like my unbelieving friends, like my lost friends, the people who are not Christians, like they start like, I'm just going to start reading the Bible. And they find the first, they just kind of randomly open up and they start reading the book of Judges and they're like, the Bible is pretty bad. And I'm like, oh, no, 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 don't start with Judges. <laughs> you know, like Judges is really bad. <laughs> you know, like, and that's the point of Judges is like, it's supposed to be like really bad. We're supposed to see that. And so it's on this spiritual moral decline. Okay. Um, and so we get to the end of book, the book of Judges. All right, in chapter 19, in chapters 19 through 21, and it gets so bad that there's this guy who's a Levite. And he's traveling around with this woman that it's, it's kind of mixed whether or not she's his wife or like they're just kind of hooking up or, you know, we, we don't really know kind of what's going on with this couple. But they're traveling all throughout Israel and eventually they come to this city where it's a city that's run by the tribe of Benjamin. Okay? And... They meet this guy in the center of the city, and he says, like, hey, I know you guys are a guest in town. I've got a little Airbnb, right? Like, come on over, stay at my crib, and you guys can kind of hang out, right? And so they go to the Airbnb, hanging out with this guy, and in the middle of the night, the elders of that town, which is the leaders of that town, come, and they say, bring the dude out. We're going to violate him. This is the leaders and elders of the town of this tribe in Benjamin. Bring the dude out. We're going to violate him. Right? So much, the, the spiritual and moral decline, right? That's already a sign of spiritual and moral decline. You know, but then you have the people, right, say, no, I'm not sending the dude out, but I'll send my partner out. And they violate a woman 
all night to the point of death. Okay? Now, what happens is word gets out to the rest of Israel. And Israel gets so upset by this, they come to the tribe of Benjamin and say, we're taking out the whole tribe of Benjamin. Like you guys are all morally and spiritually corrupt. We're taking the whole tribe out. And the tribe begs and pleads for mercy and says, don't take us all out. Like then we'll just cease to exist. Like our tribe will just be wiped off of the face of the earth. And so they, they spare some of them and allow the tribe of Benjamin to keep going. Okay? So what have we learned already at this point of the context, right, is that Israel, when we're coming into 1 Samuel, has been on this trajectory of spiritual and moral decline, where it gets really bad <laughs> there at the end in, in chapters 19 through 21, which is why the author says at the end of the book of Judges, everybody was doing what was right in their own eyes because there was no king. Like Israel's really bad off. It's in turmoil by the time we get into 1 Samuel. Okay, and so the, it's, it's highlighting the book of Judges, the internal threats that Israel is facing and the external threats. And so the narrative is no different now as we move into 1 Samuel. That's the context that's going to help us understand immediately, right away, some key phrases and words that are going to pop up here in 1 Samuel 9 and 10. So let's turn there now and look at it, right? So keep that background story I've just told you in mind. Because notice these first few words. There was a man of Benjamin. Uh-oh. Right? We just got out of the story in the book of Judges. Benjamin's not a good tribe, spiritually and morally. This is a problem. Right? They've just come out of chapter 8, saying, hey, we want a king. And now the story's starting off with... Hey, there's this guy in Benjamin. Uh-oh. Israel's asked for a king, and now they're starting to talk about a dude from Benjamin. This is a problem. Whose name was Kish, right? Son of Abel, son of Zeor, son of blah, 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 you know, a Benjamite. A man of wealth. Okay, so there's a key attribute that to describe this guy is that he is a man of wealth. So he's rich. And he had a son whose name was Saul, and he was what? Handsome, good-looking. This is a good-looking guy. He's a wealthy, good-looking guy, right? You know, we're already like, yeah, all right, this, this is looking good. He's a good-looking guy. He's wealthy. But the problem is he's from the tribe of Benjamin. And there was no man among the people of Israel more handsome than he, for he, from his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. So here we have a guy who's wealthy, he's good-looking, and he's tall, right? I mean, this sounds like good stuff, right? But what type of king did the nation of Israel want from chapter 8? A king like the other nations. Wealthy, handsome, good-looking, looks like he's basically a god, because that's what kings were in the ancient world, is they were basically functionally gods. So we're already kind of like set up with, some, with a mixed bag here, right? Like the author's trying to get us set to say, okay, look, this isn't all good, all right? This is start, starting off on a bad foot. It looks on the surface like something good. It's someone who's wealthy, who's tall, who's good-looking, right? 
but he's from the tribe of Benjamin, and this could become problematic, right? So now, what's the context of the story that takes place in chapter 9? So essentially, uh, you know, um, Saul's father is a, is a wealthy man, right? Like Saul comes from this really wealthy family, which is ironic because the tribe almost got like completely wiped out, right? And so how did they come to all this money? Could be a question, right? Like the text doesn't answer it for us, but there could be another form of corruption going on there, right? Um, so he's got this really wealthy father and he's lost some of his herd. Like, you know, in the ancient world, that was the way a sign of wealth it was like you had a lot of like cattle. It was a very agricultural society, right? And so they've lost a bunch of donkeys, okay? Uh, and so he says, Saul, I want you to take a servant and I want you to go look for these donkeys. And they're going all over the region looking for these donkeys and they can't find them, okay? And they're going from town to town, from region to region, from tribe to tribe, trying to find these donkeys. And eventually they come into a town um, and the servant says, hey, Saul, I've got an idea. There's this dude in town that's really like connected to like our God, you know, the God of Israel. So uh, how about we go talk to him and he'll tell us where the donkeys are, okay? And then there's a specific phrase in there that kind of clues you into, once again, the kind of the spiritual and moral decline in Israel is they say, do we have any money to pay this guy? Uh, because, like, we, we need to give him some money if he's going to tell us where the donkeys are. Well, that's a pagan practice, okay? If you actually go back to the book of Numbers, there's this dude named Balaam they tried to pay money to, to kind of curse some people, okay? You don't pay God's prophets to get them to do their job, okay? Uh, so this is another, again, this is like, these people are not very spiritually wise, okay, <laughs> right? Uh, and so they're saying, hey, let's go pay this guy, and then he'll tell us where the donkeys are, right? Like, you kind of think of even other parts of the world where they pay, like, a shaman, right? You kind of bring your little, you know, gift, right? And you're going to pay this religious guy to do something special for you, to heal you or to, to, to give you some kind of fortune, right? These things still exist in our world today, okay? So this is a very pagan idea, right? So once again, evidence of spiritual and moral decline. So now... The interesting thing is there's this great commentary. I love it when the Bible kind of takes you out of the narrative. It's kind of like a Ferris Bueller moment, right? He breaks the fourth wall and starts talking to us, right? Like about there's all this kind of stuff that's kind of going on. And so it does that here in verse 15. It says in verse 15, now the day before Saul came, right? So Saul and his servant have come and they're kind of seeking out Samuel. They find him, they're knocking on his door. And then here's the background information. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord, Yahweh, had revealed to Samuel, tomorrow about this time I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin. Oh, wow, that's a big statement. And you shall anoint him to be prince over my people. And he shall save my people from the hands of the Philistines. For I have seen, this is, uh, continue on in verse 16, right? I've seen my people because their cry has come to me. And when Samuel saw, uh, saw Saul, he told him, here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. Okay, so this is important background information. So God's already mentioned, God's already whispered subtly, right? Like he's already said to Saul or to Samuel, Hey, there's a guy coming tomorrow from the tribe of Benjamin. He's going to knock on your door. That's the first king of Israel. So God has intervened in the midst of their 
bad asking for a king, their spiritual and moral decline, right? God's showing himself to say, I'm involved in this process. I know you want to circumvent me out. You're rejecting me as your king, but I'm still intervening. And why is God intervening? Because he's heard the distress of his people. Right? It's not because they asked for a king and he's just kind of giving them what they want. No. He says, I have heard the cries of my people. That phrase is similar to the setup of Exodus, isn't it? I've heard the cries of my people and I will save them. I will deliver them. What's the purpose of God using this spiritually, morally bankrupt Benjamite to show how big and how awesome he is? Everybody in Israel knows Benjamin's bad. And that's the tribe you're going to call the first king from? This is clearly God, right? Like he is subverting their expectations. He's giving them something alternative, right? They were ready to wipe out the whole tribe of Benjamin because they were so bad. In a nation that's already spiritually and morally bad. (laughs) So like Benjamin's really bad. And yet he's subverting their expectations and saying, I'm going to call the first king of Israel from the tribe of Benjamin. Why? Because I'm going to use him to deliver my people. Like this is God at work. Subtly and subversively intervening. <laughs> I mean, this is huge for God to do this. He's heard the cries of people. He's, show, he's ready to show them mercy. Right? Now, as we think about this in our context, okay, as we like bring it into today, is this not what God does all the time? <laughs> is this not the human experience? Like Anthony talked about that, right, that... You know, a lot of these Old Testament narratives are like trying to highlight the human experience. That we have people who come into power in our government. And there are those of us, you know, who look at it and we say, that guy? That's going to be the president of the United States? And then there are other people who look at the same guy and say, that guy? How did he pull that off? Right? That there's this part of leadership where it's an astonishing call. It's miraculous that the people God calls to lead. In two ways. It's either astonishing in that people are like, really? That guy? I don't know about him. Or they're like, I don't know how that guy did it, but it's cool that he did. Right? We've seen this even in the past few decades within our own country. Like me as a minority, I never thought I would see the day where a Barack Obama would become the president of the United States. Not in my lifetime. Like maybe in my kids, but not in my lifetime. And it happened. And so for me, you know, I'm like looking at that, I'm like, wow, that's amazing. Like look at the, like the progress we've made that like a black man can actually become the president of the United States. Like we've gone from like slavery to now a president, the Oval Office of the United States, right? And so people, there's people, people in this room who are even like, yeah, that was amazing. That was really cool to see. And then there are other people who are like, yeah, but what about Barack's policies? Don't really like that guy. He's way too liberal for me. So there's like this mixed bag even when something astonishing like that happens, right? And then you move a couple decades later 
right? Trump, it's like the archetype of Barack Obama, okay? And, you know, people who are very upset with the Obama narrative and the Obama-like policies and the way he runs things, they're like, yeah, Trump's our guy. He's the archetype. And they're like, I don't know how he did it. I don't know how he pulled it off, but he got into office. And now he's going to make things happen for us conservatives. And then there's that other group of people that are like, really? I thought like we made progress with the Obama thing. This feels like we're like going back. Do you see like this astonishment that God does sometimes when we bring political powers into office? Like it's mixed, the astonishment. And so it's the same here. Saul is, it, it, it's astonishing. <laughs> The call of Saul. He's from the tribe of Benjamin. There's some people who are like, well, yeah, he's tall and he's handsome, he's wealthy, he's good looking, you know, like, that kind of makes sense. Like, yeah, like, we want a guy like that. And then there are other people like, we're going to see as we move along the story here, like, really, that guy? And so what we see here, though, is the astonishment of this is that we see God's hand in the midst of it. And why is God intervening? Because of his mercy. So no matter who comes into power, I think we have this something we always have to wrestle with, no matter who's in power, whether it's a Barack or whether it's a Trump. How is God mercifully intervening in the midst of this? What is God doing? We get so enamored on what the people want or the type of leader it is that we forget to see what is God doing in the midst of this chaos and confusion of leadership that's rising and falling, right? So to, to some of my, you know, conservative friends, they'll, they'll kind of talk to me and say, like, hey, well, you, John, you know, like, the, the recent Roe v. Wade decision? Well, that was, like, set up through the Trump administration because you got that Supreme Court justice in there, and, you know, now that we have enough conservative Supreme Court justices, we can put an end to the Roe v. Wade decision, and so they're celebrating this, like, this is awesome, like, we can see God's hand in this. And then to my, my liberal friends, you know, who, you know, are, are looking at this, say, hey, look, well, John, like, I get that, and, and that's fine. But, you know, having good health care was already putting abortions on the decline. Like, giving people good access to good health care was already putting the abortion narrative on the decline. And so if we really listen to our friends, to the, the, the people who are a part of our faith system, that they, we might see God's mercy moving in multiple different ways throughout these things that we kind of prop up and say, oh, this guy's bad and this guy's good, or this guy's bad and this guy's good. But what we should be looking for is where is God sovereignly, subtly, subversively interweaving his plan of salvation, his, you know, our cries for mercy. He's intervening in the midst of that. So first thing we saw here is the astonishing call. The next thing that we're going to look at is the affirming call. And part of the affirmation that we need to see here of Saul coming into power is there's going to be a divine affirmation and a human affirmation. Okay? A divine affirmation and a human affirmation. So look with me in chapter 10, verse 6. Okay? Um, well, well, a little bit of backstory is, you know, 
Samuel's come and he's, he's told Saul, right, like you're going to be the next king or you're going to be the first king of Israel. And he's going to give him these three signs that are happening. He says, you're going to find the donkeys that you're looking for. Somebody's going to come and provide some bread and wine. They're going to give you a meal. And then you're going to run across this like hippie band. Uh, you know, like they're just like traveling around singing songs to Jesus. And they're, they're around, you know, singing songs and prophesying. And you're going to join in, right? So you can see this wealthy man kind of join this little hippie band and prophesy himself. Okay, that's kind of what happens. Those three signs happen. You know, Saul still has his doubts uh, about whether or not uh, he's even called. Um, like he, he even questions, you know, Samuel uh, in verse 21. Saul answered, he said, am I not a Benjamite from the least of the tribes of Israel? So you can see Saul's even astonished by this call of him becoming the first king. He's like, do you know the family I'm from? Like, this is pretty bad, right? Um, and then when we get to... Um, chapter 10, verse 6, like we're going to see the beginning of God affirming this call of Saul. It says, then the spirit of the Lord will rush upon you. This is Samuel talking to Saul, right? Will rush upon you and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. So there's this recognition within the text that Saul is ill-equipped. He's not the most bestly suited man for the office of the first king of Israel. He needs to be empowered by the Spirit of God. Okay? And Samuel recognizes that. He says, yes, you don't have the spiritual ability. You're from the tribe of Benjamin. I get that. Like, it's not like I'm naive. Okay? And so the Spirit is going to come upon you. And he's going to empower you to prophesy. And that will be a sign that God is with you. God will help you rule over the nation of Israel. And then we get down to verse 9. And it says, when he turned back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all these signs came to pass that day. There is the affirmation of God's call. God recognizes this man is ill-equipped to lead his people, but God's not. God's not. So you can already see the subversion, right? What's the context from chapter 8? They ask for a king like all the other nations. And what is God giving them? A king he thinks is suited to rule Israel, not like the other nations. This is a spirit-empowered king. Now, it's not going to stay like this. If the rest of you kind of know the rest of the story with Saul, it's not going to stay like this forever. But we got to kind of just recognize and be in the moment and say, God is at work here. He's giving Saul the opportunity to start off on a good foot. He's intervening. He's subverting their expectations. He's offering an alternative type of king, a spirit-led king. It literally says, God gave him another heart, gave him another inward being. Like, the, the, like in, the, in the Bible, the heart is like your inner personhood. It's not just like your affections or emotions. It's your thoughts. It's like your will. It's your whole inner being. It's what makes you you. And God gave him a new heart. He, gave, he, made, he transformed Saul into something completely different. Right? And we needed this. So there's this, rec there's this God empowerment. And then if we skip down to uh, 
you know, verses uh, 20 through 24 that, you know, our friend read for us earlier. It says, then Samuel brought out all the tribes of Israel near. The tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. So they start throwing lots and saying, okay, what tribe is going to kind of, you know, is, is the, the royal line, is the monarch, is the king going to come from? Okay. And Benjamin comes up. And then a clan comes up. So you kind of see a funnel system here, right? Like we have all of Israel and then Benjamin, and then this clan, and then the family of Kish, all the way down to Saul, right? So they keep throwing lots, and eventually it works its way down to Saul. Now, once again, the, 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 I love what the writer, the, the writer, you know, does here in 1 Samuel. He's, he's always kind of like playing on irony, right? Like there's a lot of humor in 1 Samuel, because God's come, he's changed this guy's heart, and when they finally are like, all right, Saul's the guy, what's Saul doing? He's hiding. He's hiding in the luggage. <laughs> right? And I mean, I, I don't know if you've you ever seen Seinfeld before, but like, there's this like, episode where like, Elaine starts dating this really good-looking guy, but he's kind of an idiot. And you know, Jerry says, like, you know, he's like a male bimbo. He's a mimbo. Right? That's, that's kind of how I think of Saul. You know? like, he's kind of like a mimbo. Um, you know? it's like, this doesn't make any sense. You're hiding in the luggage, and you're really this tall guy, head and shoulders above everybody else. Like, and everybody can kind of see, like, you know, like he's not hiding very well, right? Okay. So God tells them, like, hey, he's over there hiding in the luggage. That's the dude. Bring him out. And uh, so they bring him out. Everybody takes a look at the guy. And they're like, wow, like, this guy's wealthy. He's handsome. He's tall. Yeah, this is our guy. And so you get down to end of verse 24. And Samuel said to all the people, do you see him? Whom the Lord has chosen, there could be a little bit of sense of irony or, or comedy there. Like Samuel's like, you rejected God for this guy? Like he could be saying that. I don't know. Um, there's none like him among all the people. Yes, truly. Um, and all the people shouted, long live the king. Okay. So the people affirm this guy. Yes, he will be our first king. Right. So we have this God-empowered affirmation and the people affirmation. Both are there. And once again, this is how leadership works. Okay, with any leader who comes to power to anywhere in the world, they have to have some type of leadership ability that people were like, I want to follow that guy. And we have this phrase where we, we, we talk about people having God-given talent, something that sets them out and apart from somebody, whether it's in athletics or, or whether, you know, it's in artistry, right, in academics, even in leadership, in governance, there's something that people were like, yeah, I want to follow that guy. That guy's got something. Well, that's the God-given talent, right? Like there's something that God's given this person. What that person does with those resources is on, you know, is not what necessarily God's doing, but he has given them ability, right? Have you ever racked your brain on how like somebody like Adolf Hitler like comes into power and he's such a wicked person? But I mean, I was a communication major. We studied, he was a great orator. Like he was a really powerful speaker. And so he could deceive people through his great speeches. And people fell for it. Right? So there is this natural ability God can put within people. And people can take that natural ability, that God-given ability, and still exploit it, but it's still God-given. And then the people recognize it. Like, this is part of the human experience. 
And so it's being described right here that there's this affirmation of there's the astonishment of the call, right? But then there's the affirmation of the call. And so it's important whenever we think about calling in part of the human spirits, particularly in the Christian faith, that we recognize both, right? So if any of us feel called to something, right, that's the God giving us the desire, but then there can be people who come along and tell us and affirm in us, and now it gives us more confidence in the call. Like you think about this practically, you think of the person who says, I want to be a concert pianist. Great, awesome, sit down and play the piano for me. I don't know if that's your calling, right? Okay? So this is an important part of the human experience. So we've seen the astonishment of the call, we've seen the affirmation of the call, and now let's look at the appointment, okay? The appointing of the call. This is the final step. And the appointing always comes, that we've seen this kind of picture scattered throughout the narrative so far, it always comes with a mixed bag, okay? Appointments always are gonna come with mixed results. And the author has been sprinkling this mixed appointing throughout the narrative, just in little subtle ways, okay? So I want to point out a couple of these subtleties is when God, go back to chapter 9, first tells Samuel that he's sending someone to him that's going to, you know, be the, the first king of Israel. So it says in verse 16, tomorrow about this time, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people. That is a literal translation. There is a word in Hebrew that is translated king, and it's not used here. Can you see God subtly subverting their expectations, right? He didn't say, I'm going to make this man king. He's not just giving them what they want. God's not going to Say, oh, well, you guys want a king, you don't want me, so I'm just going to, I'm going to call it quits. No, God's still saying, I'll give you a ruler, I'll give you a prince, but he will still be under my authority. And how the author is going to demonstrate that throughout the rest of the narrative is there's going to be this tied relationship between Samuel and Saul. Because Samuel speaks the word of God. He's, He's God's prophet. And so he's supposed to do what Samuel instructs because Samuel represents God's authority. And so when Saul doesn't listen to Samuel, he's going to get in trouble. Okay? Like, and we already see that here subtly put in place by God. And then you go down to chapter 10, verse 1. Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said... Has not God anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? There it is again. So in case we miss it the first time, he reiterates it, right? Like when my mom used to tell me something twice, I knew she wanted me to really pay attention. (laughs) Okay? God's telling us something here twice. Now, here's the mixed bag is go down to verse 24 text we already read earlier. And Samuel said to all the people, do you see him? The Lord has chosen. There's none like him among all the people. And the people shot at long live what? The prince? The king. That is the Hebrew word for king. So do we see the mixed here? 
God's choosing a man to be prince, to be subverted, right, to submit to his authority. They're still wanting a king like the other nations. It's mixed. Okay? So they're saying, yeah, we want a guy like the other nations. And God's saying, well, I'm not giving you what you want. <laughs> I'm going to give you somebody to rule over you, okay? You want big government? I'm giving you big government. Okay? But I'm going to work through it. It still has to be under my authority. Now, we also see, uh, you know, the, the scholar, the liberal scholars will, will talk about this in, in chapter 10, that verses 17 uh, through 19 seem like an added thing. Let's, let's what the liberal scholars always do, okay? They're like, well, this doesn't seem original to the original story. You know, like, I, I, they always play this, like, little hermeneutical acrobatics, and I can't stand it. <laughs> you know, like, and so they're like, well, this is going back. Because, you know, liberal scholars are all about progress, like progressive, right? Things moving forward. So you, like, leave off a of chapter 8, and Samuel's all upset. They're like, you're rejecting God as your king. And so to go back to that doesn't feel like progress, right? Um, and it's just like, he's just reminding them, okay? <laughs> it's not like some old, you know, or, you know, like, it's not add it later. It's just a part. It's not a huge disruption to the narrative, okay? And so he reminds them in 17 through 19 what he's already said in chapter 8. Before he's going to install the king, he's giving them a warning, right? So this is, once again, is the mixed bag here, okay? He's saying, do you not remember who saved our descendants from Egypt? Like you're stressed out about all these surrounding powers around you. You're stressed out about the spiritual and moral decay within our own nation. Do you not remember who God is? So before he installs this guy in place, he's reminding the people, God is your deliverer. God is the God of salvation. He is the one who heard your cries for mercy back in Egypt and delivered you. And he's reminding them. Why is he reminding them of this narrative here in 17 through 19? Because in the grand scheme of things, we've, we've got to remember this, okay? In Israel, Israel's not some big world superpower. The Philistines are not some big world superpower. Big world superpowers do appear in the Bible, but they're Egypt, Babylon, and Assyria. <laughs> and they're stressed out about this little faction, this little nation of Philistine, <laughs> right? They're stressed out about the Philistines. And God's already delivered them from Egypt like a world superpower. He's taken them down, and they're stressed out about the Philippines. Or not. The Philistines, right? Not the Philippines. <laughs> Sorry for any Filipinos in the room. Sorry. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, do you see this, right? So, Samuel's disrupting the narrative to remind the people of who God is. This is the God who hears your pleas for mercy. And he's working even through your unhealthy expectations. He's working through them. And then finally, there's this little subtle clue here in verse 27. But some of the worthless fellows said, how can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present. But he held his peace. And this word worthless fellows means the marginalized, the poor, so some scholars would say, you know, this could be, you know, like uh, 
This dude maybe came by his wealth in a bad way, exploiting some of the marginalized. And so they're like, that guy? No, no way. I know what his family stands for. I know what they've done to get their power and their wealth. We're not following that guy. Now, the, the, the tricky thing is here where we see it's a mixed bag is that same word, worthless fellows, is going to be used of the people who follow King David when David starts to rise into power, when Saul's trying to kill him and persecute him and he's running all over the country hiding from Saul. The worthless fellows follow David. Can you already see what the author is kind of setting up here, right? That just because an appointment happens doesn't mean it doesn't come with a, like a mixed bag. And this is a part of the human experience, isn't it? Right? If we go back to our illustration of Barack and Donald, <laughs> they come into power, and it's a mixed bag, isn't it? Not everybody's supportive. So even the, though the appointment happens, there's a recognition. Yes, they are our leader. They are our power. That doesn't mean everybody likes the guy. But God can still work through it. I think that's the point of this narrative. It's recognizing all these parts of the human experience, right? And so it, it, the Bible's not some ancient text that has nothing to say or to speak into what we're dealing with today. It still has relevance. And God hears our pleas for mercy. And even through our unhealthy expectations, even through the, the, the leaders that we may not like, God's still interweaving his story through it. He's working in the midst of it. Where do we see this most clearly? The cross. The cross. At the cross, it looked like God was defeated. Here is the God of the universe, the king of the universe, treated like a criminal on a cross. And what's God doing? Conquering sin, Satan, and death. Can you see how God works? <laughs> Even through the worst atrocity in human history, you know, the book of Proverbs tells us that it is an abomination to justify the wicked. Well, what's happening at the cross? God is justifying the wicked. And God's working through that broken system, broken leaders, broken historical context, broken political powers. Why? Because he's heard our cries for mercy. And he will subtly subvert all governing authorities to accomplish his purposes. We cannot get rid of God's will. He will work through whatever means because he is God. Let me pray for us. Father, you for this sweet reminder this morning that you are the God of mercy. You hear us in our distress. You hear us in our cries. And when it looks like our world is crumbling, when it looks like everything we've been longing for is, is cracking at the seams, 
we see in this story that you're subtly, subversively subverting our expectations, working against the grain. And so please, help us to remember. I know I'm such a forgetful person. I forget who you are, what you've done in the past, what you're doing now. Many times be just because I'm not looking. Give us all eyes to see where you're on the move so that we can, like the author of 1 Samuel, start to see your story interwoven throughout all the mess and the brokenness. So even in this big transition of power from small government of, of tribal communities governing the people into a bigger government, we see your hand at work. So no matter what type of government we're in, what type of governing authorities we're under, may we look to see where is God at work? Where can we see that he hears our cries for mercy? And we thank you that the greatest place we've seen that is at the cross. We thank you for the story of Jesus and what he's done. It's in his name we pray. Amen.